uh, in his children's novel, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, the, the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis begins the book with this sentence. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I love that, right? What, poor kid, Eustace Scrub. Um, but you get what Lewis means as you read on. Uh, Eustace was hard to get along with, to say the least. He, was, he proved to be arrogant, self-centered, unkind, right? hard to befriend. And as the story progresses, there, there's a scene where Eustace finds a dragon's lair. And in that dragon's lair, there is, is treasure. And immediately, the greed kicks in in Eustace's heart. And he starts hoarding. That's what dragons do, in case you were wondering. They hoard things. And this, was, this is what Eustace was doing. And he, he picked up a, a beautiful piece of, of treasure. And it was a bracelet. He clamps it on his arm. And then he falls asleep. And when he awakes he finds that he himself has turned into a dragon. And Lewis narrates this. He says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had himself, or he had become a dragon himself. And Eustace then tries to no avail to, to tear off and remove this scaly dragon skin. And finally, that evening, someone intervenes, Aslan the lion. And he comes and he begins using his claws to tear away the dragon skin of Eustace. And Eustace is later recounting this scene to another character, Edmund. And here's what he says. Listen to this description. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought. I'd done it, uh, done it myself the other three times, and there I was, smooth and as soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much. For I was very tender underneath, now that I'd had no skin. And he threw me into the water. It smarted. It caused pain like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. And Lewis narrates again. He says... It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Now, as I was reading this passage this week, I was reminded of this story because Eustace reminds me of Peter. He reminds me of myself as well. But think of Peter for a moment, the man who, who spoke boldly and put up a huge front, talked a big game about following Jesus. He struggled with arrogance and pride. And then he, he hit rock bottom and denied the Lord at the hour of his greatest need. He came to realize how, how broken he was in the wake of his sin and how there's really no way, there's no way 
Peter could restore himself. He needed intervention. And that intervention would be painful, but it would be oh so worth it. It would transform Peter. And just as C.S. Lewis meant for us to see, right, Aslan is a picture of Jesus. The only one who can restore and transform broken people like Peter and like you and me. You see, all of us are in need of restoration this morning. But there, there are barriers to our finding restoration. Some of you need restoration, but you, you don't recognize it. You hear that and you say, eh, I'm not perfect, but I'm good. I'm, I'm all set. Everything's fine. I don't, I don't really need intervention in my life. I think this was Peter before he denied Jesus, right? Relying on his own strength. And if that's you this morning, I'd encourage you to go back and, and study what we talked about last week. Where we saw again, Jesus remind us that apart from him, we can do nothing. But others of us, we know we need restoration. We also know we can't do it on our own. We've tried that and we know we've come up insufficient. But we wonder and we struggle with this question. Will Jesus really do that for me? Can Jesus actually peel off the scales of my, my sin and my shame and my past and, and make me new? Can he actually, I mean, you don't know what I've done. Can he actually transform me and then send me out and use me for his glory? And the answer that Jesus gives to that question this morning is a resounding yes. Absolutely. In fact, the, the simple message of these verses is this. Jesus restores. Jesus restores. And as we consider this, we want to consider this in three parts. Number one, Jesus restores us to a loving relationship with him, verses 15 through 17. Number two, Jesus calls us to follow him, verses 15 through 19. And then lastly, Jesus redirects our focus on him, verses 20 through 25. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time in his word. Father, we come before you and we know that we need your Holy Spirit to properly understand your word and to apply it to our lives in a meaningful way. So God, we ask now, first we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is alive and well and speaking to us, those who need restoration this morning. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and that we would experience the life-giving, restorative grace of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's jump in. Number one, Jesus restores us to a loving relationship with him. As the passage begins, Peter is confronted by Jesus. Look at verse 15 again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's a unique way of confronting Peter, but that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is having Peter face his sin head on. Now, there's no explicit mention of the denial, right? He's not saying, remember when you denied me? We're going to deal with that right now. But the number of questions is clear, right, of the parallel. He asks him three times. Peter denied Jesus three times in John 18. So Jesus has Peter confess the, the simplest yet most important confession of the Christian life, and he has him do it three times, but notice he doesn't just ask, do you love me? He asks, do you love me more than these? 
Now, there's been a lot of sort of study and conversation about what the these is in verse 1. Some think it could be uh, the fishing equipment laying around. They had just been fishing, and Jesus might be saying, do you love me more than your past career? Do you love me enough to give that up and follow me? Maybe. Or, or it could mean, do you love me, Peter, more than you love these other disciples, these men that you've spent the last three years with? And certainly Peter loved them dearly. That's possible as well. Or it could mean, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? And I would submit to you that this is, I think this is the most likely reading. After all, Peter was bold in his declaration that he loved Jesus more than anybody. I die for you. I'm never going to let you be arrested. And he failed. And, and people who are forgiven much like Peter, love much. And so by having Peter confess Jesus as the supreme object of his love, he is restoring him with his grace. Now we have to ask the question at a deeper level, what was Peter's sin? Because we normally say, yes, uh, Jesus was, Peter denied Jesus three times. That's what he did. That was his sin. True, it was denial, but just as with every sin in our life, there's a sin beneath the sin. David Pallison calls uh, those sins marquee sins. You know a marquee, right? A sign you drive by. It's very easy to see and read. We have marquee sins in our lives. They're easy to, to spot. But what Jesus is doing here and what he calls all of us to do is dig deeper and find the root sin beneath the sin, if you will. And so Jesus knows the depth of Peter's heart. His ultimate problem was not that he wasn't strong enough. It, it wasn't that he wasn't bold enough, though that's true. He wasn't bold, he wasn't strong, he denied Jesus. But his sin of denial was rooted in his heart. It was a problem of disordered loves. This is why Jesus asked the question, do you love me? And not, Peter, will you be bold for me next time? See what he's doing? He's getting beneath the denial to the sin of Peter's heart. See, you and I, we have to do the slow, thoughtful, prayerful work of identifying the root of our sin, the sin beneath our sin. A physician who only treats symptoms is not a good doctor, right? You go to the doctor, your arm is clearly cracked right here, hanging down. Sorry for that image, but, and the doctor says, man, that's terrible. Here's a bunch of strong painkillers. You say, whoa, wait, wait a second, that might make you feel better for a while. But you say, no, 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 I need someone to set the bone, right? However painful it may be, that's what you, you and I ultimately need. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. And that's what he wants to do with all of us, to restore us by getting at the heart level of our sin. So let me just give you some examples of this. You may say, I'm an angry person. That's the marquee sin, right? I'm angry all the time, and what do I need to do? I just need to stop being angry. By the way, how's that working out for you? I'm just going to will myself to stop being an angry person. But what you haven't done is ask the question, what's, what's driving my anger? What's the sin beneath the sin there? Well, likely, oftentimes with anger, it's a desire to be in control. I want to be in control, and then someone 
has thwarted my plans. I've made an idol out of my own plans. And because someone has thwarted them and things don't go the way I want, I've lost control and now I'm angry. See, it's a sin beneath the sin. And what you need to, to hear, just as Peter needed to hear, do you love me? The angry person needs to hear, hey, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm sovereign and in control even when things don't go your way? Or take the, the idea of lust. Maybe the struggle is lust. And you say, I just need to stop being lustful. I need to stop having these thoughts or, or actions or whatever they are. And you say, I'm just going to will myself to stop. That's like cutting weeds. You can't just cut weeds, right? They grow back stronger and more numerous. You have to root them out. So what is the root sin of lust? Well, there can be many, but the most prominent one is an idol of pleasure and comfort. I want to experience pleasure and comfort all the time. So I'm going to take God's good gifts and I'm going to twist them. And I'm going to pursue my lusts instead of finding ultimate pleasure in God. And that person needs to hear Jesus say, listen, friend, are you satisfied in me? Do you know that in my presence there is fullness of joy and at my right hand are pleasures forevermore? Or maybe you're just like Peter. It's easy to talk up Jesus in this room and in gospel community, right, around your Christian friends. But then in the neighborhood or in the workplace, whenever Jesus comes up, the idea of speaking boldly for Christ just cripples you with fear because you have elevated the approval of others above the approval of God. It's the sin beneath the sin, and we need to hear just as Peter needed to hear, do you love me more than the approval of others? Do you love me more than all else? See, Jesus confronts us in our sin, not just at the marquee level, not just at the behavioral level, but at the heart level. Because that's where true restoration takes place. Then notice Peter's response. Verse 15, he says, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say, Lord, I would die for you, as we may expect him to say, as he has before. He's humbled in his failure. So he simply appeals to the supernatural knowledge of Jesus. He says, Jesus, you know the depths of my heart. You know my love is not perfect, but you know it's there. You know I love you. And then as you can imagine, as Peter is confronted with this, those three questions, he's cut to the heart. He's grieved over his sin. So he's first confronted with his sin, then he's grieved over his sin. In verse 17, he, asked, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, can you imagine how painful this was for Peter? He betrayed his master. A friend he loved dearly. A friend he knew and declared to be the Christ. And this wasn't a private matter. This was public for all the other disciples to see and for all those around to see. This was a big public failure. After all, he was also the leader of the disciples. He was supposed to be the strong one. He was supposed to be the bold one, yet he failed. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's pressing into that wound. And he's not doing it to hurt Peter. He's doing it to apply the healing balm of the gospel to Peter's heart. Grieving must come first. 
Remember what Eustace said when Aslan began to cut away that dragon skin? He said, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. Friends, when we are grieved over our sin, when we are broken and brought to a place of sorrow by the Holy Spirit because we realize we've sinned against our loving and holy creator, that is a gift from God. It's a gift of God that we would see the weightiness of our sin. Thomas Watson said, The the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall see in Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So we should ask ourselves, and we should ask God in his grace, to give us the understanding to first identify our sin at a root level, as Jesus is doing with Peter, but also that the Holy Spirit would give us a deep sense of grief over our sin, of sorrow over our sin. And listen, it's not so that we can wallow in self-pity. It's not so that we can say, woe is me. It's so that we can properly see the restorative grace of the gospel. So we can be restored. And we know that Jesus restores Peter here. Why? Because coupled with these these three confessions of love, what does Jesus also give? He gives an assurance, an affirmation of him by calling him to the Lord's work. Which leads us to number two. Jesus calls us to follow him. Number one, Jesus restores us. Number two, Jesus calls us. We see here that Peter's then immediately sort of recalled to an outward ministry. Verse 15, he said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him, feed my sheep. Now, what does all this sheep and feeding talk mean? Well, first, there's a specific call on Peter's life here, a very specific, unique call. As an apostle, he's going to shepherd people with the word of God. As God builds his church, he's going to care for the church with tenderness and love, and he's going to feed them, that's the church, the sheep, the lambs, he's going to feed them with the word, with the gospel, so that they can grow up into maturity. That's Peter's call as an apostle. And while this is a unique call for Peter and the apostles, this is actually still the primary call for pastors today. So just as a side note here, this is a reminder to pray for your pastors Right? To, to pray for Pastor Clint, for Pastor Connor, for myself. Because what is the primary responsibility of pastors? Well, Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, of every church. But he's given his church under shepherds so that they can tenderly care for God's people and train them up and feed them with the word of God. Right? But there's also a principle here that's true of every Christian. Ephesians 4 says that the work of the ministry is not just for people with degrees or people who have been ordained, right, or people who, you know, that's their professional career. The work of the ministry belongs to every single saint. And so here's how that works. It's very simple. You've been restored by Jesus. You've been confronted in your sin. You've been grieved over your sin. You've received the gospel by faith alone in Christ alone. 
You've been restored, and now you have the responsibility and privilege of going out and tending to and caring for one another with the Word of God. Loving and caring for one another with the love of Christ. That's the privilege of all of us, right? Now, I'm convinced that many professing Christians are kept from the joy and fruitfulness of serving others because they're stuck on the weightiness of the past, past failures, past sins. Or maybe not even things that you've done. Maybe it's something that's been done to you and you think there's just no way I can be used by God to love and serve others. But notice the prerequisite that Jesus gives here to Peter, one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived. He says, do you love me? That's the one question. Do you love Jesus? He doesn't say, do you have a stellar track record? Peter would have failed that. He doesn't say, are you a theologian? Do you have a dynamic personality? Are you you good at public speaking? Do you have a seminary degree? No, the question he asks is about the affections. Do you love Jesus? Have you been restored by his grace? Yes? Okay, then praise God. Let him use you to love and serve others and advance his kingdom. See, Peter knew his love was not perfect. It was faint and weak. In fact, read the New Testament. Peter still struggles. He still falters. At one point, Paul has to confront him to his face publicly because he has denied the gospel in practice. Peter was a work in progress like all of us. But of course our love can still grow for Jesus. But if we love him, he can use us to bring the good news of restoration that we've experienced to others around us. What a, what a tremendous privilege. Yes, we must grieve our sin, church, don't mishear me. Yes, we must repent of the ways we've offended our loving Savior. But then we must get up, receive his forgiveness, and get to work for the kingdom, caring for one another. Now, what does that mean practically? Well, an inviting Savior creates inviting people. It means you're hospitable with your time, your resources, your talents, your money, your your home. A forgiving Savior creates forgiving people. You're, You're willingly offering forgiveness and the grace of the gospel to those who offend you. You don't hold grudges. A Savior who's a friend of sinners creates people who are also friend of sinners. Friends of those who are outside the family of Christ displaying and declaring the restorative power of the gospel to them. If you don't know what that looks like practically, I'm pretty sure, I realized this yesterday, I'm pretty sure what we have here is the first example of what we would call a gospel community. Jesus is like, I'm going to cook you breakfast, and then after that, we're going to talk about your soul, right? Isn't that what we do in gospel community? We eat food to the glory of God, and then we talk about the word and how it applies to our souls. See, we're not creative here. We're not reinventing the wheel. This happens in community. So ask yourself, have you been restored by Jesus? Okay, if yes, then who has Jesus called you to lovingly feed, tend to, and care for with his love and care? What does that look like in your life? Now, in addition to this outward ministry, notice that Peter is also called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Verse 18 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, 
You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now here Jesus tells Peter that he's going to be killed for the sake of the gospel. And and the language would have been understood at the time. That phrase, stretch out your hands, would have been immediately understood to refer to death by crucifixion. Likely referring to the condemned having to carry their own crossbar to the place of death. So in other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, you are going to die in the same way I died. And if you think about this in the the whole picture of restoration, this is actually a part of Peter's restoration as well. It's not a punishment. It's a part of him being restored. Peter once boldly declared, Jesus, I will go to prison and I will even die for you. Luke chapter 22. And now Jesus is saying, friend, you'll get another chance. You'll get another chance to suffer boldly for my sake. John also tells us something so strange to our modern ears here in verse 19. He says that Peter's suffering and death would glorify God. I believe that means because Peter was an apostle um, and he died as a martyr. And martyrdom bears a huge testimony to the grace and power of the gospel. But this principle of suffering for the glory of God is, is not just true of Peter. We see it all over in scripture. It's true of Christians today as well. None of us know how we're going to die, but we do know that following Jesus does invite opposition. The Bible tells us, 2 Timothy chapter 3.12, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, Peter would have remembered the words of Jesus from back in John 13, right? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Then Jesus tells Peter forthrightly at the end of the verse, this simple reminder, follow me. He's reminding him and he's reminding you and I that a life of following Jesus as restored sinners is never a promised life of ease. In fact, following Jesus invites the opposite because we serve a king in a kingdom that is not of this world. But in the end, it is ultimately worth it. Why? Because God receives the glory And we get the joy of being restored to his presence and used for his kingdom. Now, you and I might think getting this kind of news, hey, here's how you're going to die, would be terrifying and paralyzing, right? And it would cause anxiety. But that's actually not what Jesus intends here. He actually intends for this to bring comfort to Peter. Think of what he's saying. He's saying, Peter, I'm in control of your life. And I'm going to use it for my purposes to feed my sheep, and to glorify me. J.C. Ryle comments on this, and he applies it for us. He says, it is an unspeakable consolation to remember that our whole future is known and forearranged by Christ. There's no such thing as luck, chance, or accident in the journey of our life. Everything from beginning to end is foreseen, arranged by one who is too wise to err, and too loving to do us harm. You see, the reality of of God's sovereignty over our future is meant to free us up from fear, right? After all, death does not have the last word for the Christian. Death has been defeated by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so for those who believe in him, those who receive him by faith, death, however painful it is, however heinous it is, it is heinous, it's the last enemy to be destroyed, but it is not the end, it's an entry point for us. So Peter and we can be freed up to go and serve Jesus and love and serve others. Friends, once we grasp that Jesus knows and holds the future in our life, we are so free to pursue what God has called us to. And that leads us to number three. Jesus redirects our focus. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Okay, so we, I think we understand this response. While it's true that Peter's call to suffer and the reality that he's going to die, it's, it's meant to bring comfort to him in the long run, you've got to understand that there, there's an immediate sense of, oh my goodness, you just told me that I'm going to die. I'm going to be murdered just like you were, right? There's likely some anxiety here. And so he, he loses focus for a minute and he needs, he needs redirection from Jesus. And, and we're all like Peter here, aren't we? We can hear crystal clear truth from Jesus one minute, we're in the word, and then the, the, the next instant we're, we're distracted by something or in this case someone else. And the good news is that Jesus is always there to just lovingly redirect us, lovingly point us back to him. Now what's the, the specific distraction here? It's his friend and fellow disciple John. So, so Peter just heard that he's going to die, and we don't really know what the, is at the heart of this question. He might be thinking, uh, hey Jesus, there's, at this point, there's 11 of us. Please tell me I'm not the only one who's going to go out like that, right? Surely these other guys, they're, they're disciples too. Or, or maybe, remember John was in this inner circle, he was a, a, a true close friend of Peter. Maybe he's concerned is this is what, what gonna, what's going to happen to John as well. We, we really don't know what the heart of the question is, but we know it's a distraction because of the way Jesus responds, right? Look what he says, verse 22. If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Let me translate that for you. Hey, Peter, it's none of your business. That's what he tells John. I've got a plan for John's life, and I've got a plan for your life. You focus on what I've called you to, and you let John focus on what I've called him to. Follow me. Now, as a parent of many children, can I say that I have this conversation all the time? You don't need to worry about what chore he has to do. You just worry about the chore you have. You don't need to worry about when she gets screen time, you just, you just worry about you. Trust dad. Trust mom. We know the plans we have for you, right? So he, he redirects him and calls him back. One of the biggest sins I, I believe that we struggle with as Christians is, is the sin of comparison, right? You see, Jesus doesn't tell us all the details of how our life is going to unfold. He gives us what we need to know. He says you need to be restored by the gospel. You need to come to me. You need to repent and believe. You need to follow this call to love and serve others. And he's given us in his word all that we need for life and godliness. But the reality is what that looks like in the daily lives of each of us is very different for different disciples. So if we start looking at the other person and comparing our life to theirs, 
then we can very easily get distracted to what Christ has called us to. We have to be on on guard against this sin of comparison in our lives. I, I think there's two primary reasons for this. First, because if we're distracted by comparison, we're not going to be able to love and serve others well. Instead of thinking, how can I tend to that person? How can I care for that person? We start anxiously thinking, what are they doing? Should, should I be doing that? Should I be serving the church in that way? Should I be volunteering that way? Should I read that book? Should I parent my children that way? Should I post that on Facebook? Probably not when it comes to social media. Just delete your accounts, right? And, and do you notice there's, there's way too many eyes in those statements, right? It becomes very quickly self-focused, and we either become envious on one hand or judgmental on the other. Envious, God, I, what you gave them, I want that for my life. Or judgmental, man, why are they doing that? What's wrong with them? And we're distracted from truly loving and serving if we compare ourselves to people in that way. Second reason we need to be on guard against this is because we won't be able to love and follow Jesus well. Instead of thinking, Jesus, how can I love and follow and obey your word in my family, in my neighborhood, in in my workplace, what, what you've called me to do, we get distracted by what everyone is doing out there and then we're paralyzed and we end up not fulfilling what Jesus has called us to. And friends, the, the, the social media information age and our news feeds have magnified this. So Jesus tells Peter and he tells us, follow me right where you are to what I've called you to do. Don't worry about John. That's why he appeals to his will and his response. He said, if it's my will that John lives forever till I come back, which is not, he wasn't prophesying that. John does eventually die. But he's saying, if it's my will, what's that to you? Trust that the purposes and plans of Jesus will be fulfilled and follow him and seek for his kingdom. So may the Lord, may that be our prayer, right? May the Lord refocus us on what matters most, being restored to his grace and following him with our lives. I'm often brought back to one of my favorite passages in the Psalms. This is a wonderful prayer to pray for us. Psalm 27.4. The psalmist says, one thing I've asked. His focus is singular. One thing I've asked that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist says, I just want Jesus. I trust him with everything else. And then, friends, John brings this gospel to a close. Verse 25, he says, now, this closing remark, There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now here's essentially what he's saying. We have only begun to scratch the surface of all that God is for us in Jesus. What an apt way to end our, our time in John. In these 35 sermons, we've only begun to scratch the surface of his restorative grace for sinners like us. We've only begun to scratch the surface of what it means to follow him, but we have seen that we have all we need in him. Do you remember that that C.S. Lewis um, remark about Eustace after he was restored? He said from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, 
but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Friends, what was true of Eustace and what's true of Peter is true of those of us who believe in Christ. We can say with confidence, from that time forth, I was a different person. To be strictly accurate, I began to be a different person. I've had relapses. There are still many days when I can be very tiresome, but most of those are not noticed. The cure has begun. Praise God that in his grace, in the gospel, in Jesus, the cure and restoration and transformation has begun. Let's pray together.